I want to talk about today, the title of the message is the message. The message. What is the message? And since it's Dr. King's weekend, right? It's the weekend that we honor all the great things that he did. I want to ask you, what do you think the message of Dr. King is? I mean, I feel like sometimes it kind of gets lost. And exactly what was his message? What platform did he stand upon? And so I went to where all the answers in the universe lie, to the Internet. Uh, I looked up Wikipedia, and here's exactly what Wikipedia says about Dr. King. Dr. King is best known for his role in the advancement of civil rights based on his Christian belief. So Dr. King, right, what he stood upon, his message, was right out of the Bible. This is what he, this is it. His message was this message. If you go down to uh, his memorial, you'll see all these wonderful quotes on all different walls. And the quotes that you'll see there are quotes from the Bible, or they're quotes from a sermon, they're quotes from a, from a Christmas sermon, or, or some speech that he gave somewhere in which he was referencing the Bible. I mean, it's, it's just like constantly. One of the most famous speeches given in the entire history of the United States of America, one of the most famous, was his I Have a Dream speech. What? Well, maybe a mile and a half from here, down at the Lincoln Memorial, right? So he says this. I wrote, quote, in, in the speech, he says this, We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Does anybody know where that came from? Does anybody have any idea what inspired that line? He said it a lot, actually. Does anybody know? I mean, venture a guess. Amos 5.24. Straight out of the Bible. So I, what I want to say in the beginning, when we're talking about the message, the message to advance civil rights that Dr. King stood upon and that we honor this weekend, he was standing upon the message of, of the Bible, of, of God's Word. He established the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with 60 other Christian ministers. Now, when President Obama was inaugurated. At both inaugurations, he chose the Lincoln Bible, the family Bible of Abraham Lincoln. And he chose that, right, to put his hand upon, raise his right hand, and swear the oath of office. Uh, General George Washington, our first president, uh, began that tradition. When he was sworn into office, he took the oath, and then afterwards, he kissed the Bible. And President Obama twice chose the Lincoln Bible to do it. And some people were very, very upset with that. They were very upset because they said that the message of the Bible actually condones slavery and condones racism and that the problem is the Bible and the Bible needs to get out. So what I want to say in the beginning is which one is it? Is it, is it Dr. King who says the message of the Bible is the answer? Or is it others who are very upset and say, the message of the Bible is actually the problem? Everybody say hello to Marissa. Good morning. Lots of people have uh, given me a tremendous amount of help in preparing for this series. There's been a couple people who've gone above and beyond the call of duty, and Marissa is one of them. And so thank you very much for all you've done. And Marissa's going to read today. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. A picture of heaven. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Marissa. I think she has her Packers jersey on today. I don't think that, uh, yes, I don't think that uh, God could be any more happier than the defeat of the Dallas Cowboys today. (laughs) And we do like making God happy. All right. Let me just quickly review the three scriptures that Marissa just read for us. And the first one is this, Revelation 7, very brief. And look, it's kind of like this, like God, and we all like take pictures with our iPhones. God is giving us like this snapshot of what heaven looks like in Revelation chapter. It's like snap, this is what, and what do you notice in the snapshot? Every nation, every tribe, all people, everything, no sections, no division, all there together, all people all together. There is what the picture of heaven is, Revelation 7. So God gives us that picture into the future. Good. Second Corinthians chapter 5 was the other scripture. It says, God has given us a ministry of reconciliation and we're actually called to be ambassadors. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is somebody who's coming from another country to represent another kingdom. So anybody who's a follower of the word, a follower of Jesus Christ is an ambassador, a representative of God's kingdom here on earth. And it's a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, where we see injustice, we see wrong inequality, ministers, ambassadors, I appeal to you. Ministers or ambassadors go ahead and they, they confront it. They don't say, well, that's not my problem or, you know, that's not my thing, whatever. I'm too busy, whatever. No, no. They, they do something about it. Because why? Because they've been called to a ministry of reconciliation. They get involved. They do something. They just don't let it, they don't let it go by. We've been called to a ministry of reconciliation. Last scripture, Ephesians chapter, really, really important chapter. Like all the Bible is really, really important. But Ephesians chapter 2, everybody, whatever you think it means to be a follower of Christ, whatever I think it means, whatever I think it means to be saved, whatever I've been told or I think, it has to match up with Ephesians chapter 2. Because Ephesians chapter 2 tells us what it means to be in a right or a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and then what is the impact of that? So how does that then change me? All right, so now I've been saved, right? Now I'm in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now what is the impact of that? So that's what Ephesians 2 tells us there. And it says this. It's really important. It says, there is a dividing wall of hostility that has come down. Why was there a dividing wall of hostility is the question. We have to ask it. So where, where, where did it come from? Here's where it came from. It says the law, the Bible, actually they used it to create a dividing wall of hostility. Like the very, so the Bible is God's gift This is God's wonderful, wonderful gift to us. And he says, you know what? 
Abraham, I'm going to bless you because I want you. Does anybody know how it ends? I want to bless you so that you can be a, anybody know? A blessing. So in other words, I'm going to bless you, but I want you to bless the whole world. And then God says, I want my house to be a house for all nations. And so God gives them the word, this wonderful good gifts, because I want to bless people. I want to help people. And instead what they did is they used it to create a dividing wall of hostility to say, you know what, we're in, you're out. We're clean, you're unclean. And he created all kinds of problems. We're superior, you're inferior. And this is what happened. But it all started with, it all started with a really, really good gift. So if you had, right, so he's speaking here to Jews and Gentiles. That encompasses everybody that's in this room right now. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. There's nothing else outside of that. It's the entire human race. If you had a young Jewish boy and he says, you know what? I'm going to marry uh, this young Gentile girl over here. Then his family would hold a funeral. You know why? Because that boy's as good as dead. If you had somebody who was Jewish and they went outside of the land of Israel, when they came back into the land, they got to the border, they would shake their feet. And you know what they were doing? They're getting all the dust off of their feet because they didn't want to contaminate Israel with the unclean Gentile world. Where did, where, where did that idea came from? The idea came from everybody because they took this wonderful good gift and they, they twisted it and they used it. And this is what Ephesians 2 is talking about, to create a dividing wall of hostility. So they had separate places to eat. They had separate places to drink. They had separate places to worship. Now, what does that sound a lot like to you? It sounds a lot like to me like separate swimming pools and restaurants and seats on the bus, water fountains. Sounds a lot. It sounds a lot like history just keeps repeating itself. Does it sound that way to you? When you study this through history, you begin to see that, you know what? We need to look back through history and what is it that we need to learn and what we're trying to do in this series is we want to take a look back through history and say, you know what, what has worked? What has actually worked? A lot of times Chris and I will be having, you know, conversations around an issue. And I'll stop and I'll say, now, are we talking or are we solving? You know what I'm saying? Because there's a big difference. Because when we're talking, I'm just kind of sitting there listening. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just, just listening. Say yes. But if we're solving, then... Then, then, you know, we're like solving, you know what I mean? And both of them are very, very, very important. Through this series, at least here in this room, we want to look back through history and we talk about what works. Is the message the answer or is it the problem? And they had taken God's good gift and they had created a dividing wall. Of, now, why would they do that? How would that happen? Well, last week we began to talk about it because it's in actually a few, few verses earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. It says we all have a sinful nature, and there's a word that none of us like to hear. Right? And some of us don't like to hear it because, yeah, you know, we know somebody came along and they were calling us sinner or pointing or whatever. You saw somebody doing it to somebody else or whatever, and that's a problem. But I want you to love the word sin. I want you to get comfortable with the word sin throughout this series because actually dealing with the fact that we all have a sinful nature is going to be the way to racial reconciliation because a sinful nature, right? In curvitus inse, our sinful nature, it's a word, sarx, S-A-R-X. 
And it means that we are curved in upon ourselves and that every single one of us has some measure, large, small, whatever, that we are self-centered. And none of us can say, I mean, like who would stand up in this room and say, you know what, I'm 100% pure selflessness. None of us that I know that is right in their mind would say that. And so we could all admit, yes. So if that's the definition in Scripture of what it means to sin, well, yes, then, then I am a sinner. I have a sinful nature because at least there's a measure of self-centeredness in me. And because of that self-centeredness, what self-centeredness does is it, in the Bible, it uses everything, including God and including God's good gifts for selfish reasons. And so they have this wonderful gift and eventually, over a period of time, because the sinful nature, they began to use it in order to feel superior to other people because that's how we get our identity and make other people feel inferior. And this is what they did and said, well, they're unclean. We're in and, we're the, we're, we're in and they're out because of that sinful nature that we all have. Now, let's talk for a moment about Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail. I hope some of you took an opportunity this past week. I know I spoke about it last week saying, hey, let's, let's read it in preparation because it's a magnificent letter that he wrote from the Birmingham jail. There are two major themes I want to talk about in the letter. And the first one is this, right? Major theme number one, it was based on the Bible. So as you read through that letter, you see he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the story of Jesus. He's talking about prophets that went around. And what did the prophets do when they were around? They said, hey, some things are sin and there's injustice. And they're calling out sin. He talks about that. He talks about Old Testament. He talks about the Apostle Paul. So he talks and talks and talks about the Bible. The Bible is laced everywhere. So it's clear that he believed the answer to civil rights, just so we're clear. He believed that this was it. This is what he was standing upon. The second thing he talked about was this, status quo. So if you've read the letter before, you know that he mentioned this often. How about wait, be patient. Now, let's think a second, everybody. Why, why would you tell somebody to wait or be patient, you know, take it easy, slow down? Why, how could you look at somebody whose house had been bombed, whose life is under constant threat, who, who was stabbed during a book signing, who's in jail, whose wife's life is threatened all the time, whose kids' lives are threatened, whose, the phone rings like crazy with death threats from people, and this has been going on daily, 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 year after year after year. Can you think for a second? Could you actually sit down, look across the table, and look somebody in the eye and say, hey, man, just be patient? What would enable you to be able to do that if you were able to do that? So what Sarks is, is this. It's like a hot tub. As long as Sarks is in the hot tub and everything's working for you, okay, I know it's uncomfortable, but be patient. It'll work out eventually for you, but you're okay. As long as you're okay, you're okay. Change, everybody, is always challenging. Our problem is, is we're wired for comfort and comfort always corrupts. Change is always challenging. My hope in this series is that every single person in this room will be challenged, every single person, no matter the color of your skin, no matter where you stand philosophically, is that every single one of us will be challenged because until we're all challenged, true change is never actually going to take place on a grand scale. So we'll all be challenged and we'll all realize that we're wired for comfort with a sin nature and sin happens and we'll understand that comfort always, always corrupts. The Bible challenges us over and over and over again. Uh, after September 11th, everybody, uh, what was often said, it's the first time in America that here on American soil we have suffered terrorism. 
Now, there's a group of people who weren't too happy with that. Do you know who they are? African Americans who had lived through decades of terrorism. All right? I've already said that Dr. King's house was bombed. They actually renamed Birmingham, Bombingham, Alabama, because there were so many bombs that went off in that city. The Equal Justice Initiative says that there was approximately 4,000 lynchings in America. Okay, terrorism was a daily event. If you talked about somebody who's actually driving through the South decades ago, that, you know, they didn't know if they were going to be okay. Terrorism was constant. What would help you to be able to say to somebody who's facing that, hey, just be patient, wait. It's because we are turned in upon ourselves. Now, I want to show you a video clip, and then after the clip, we're going to have a special story from the Thompson family. So back, um, back in 1964, there was a court case here in the state of Virginia. It's called the State of Virginia versus Loving, the Loving family, Okay. And I want to play you the beginning of the loving documentary, not the movie, but the documentary. And the words you're going to hear are the actual words that Judge Leon Bazile said in his ruling in the loving case. And then we're going to have the story from the Thompson family. So watch the screen. Good morning. My name is Ryan Clarence Thompson, and my grandfather, Clarence Fowler, was born in 1935 in a small town in Alabama called Perdido. I'll be reading this on his behalf. As a young boy, the segregation situation impacted many areas of my life. To get to school, I had to walk three and a half miles each way while passing white schools. As a teenager, I rode the bus with my mother, where blacks could sit only in the back two or three rows. If black seats were full, we would have to stand. Sometimes we would be packed in like sardines, even though there were empty seats in the white section. Whether you were elderly, carrying a baby, or had small children, if you were black, it didn't matter. At that point, I made up my mind that I had to get out of Alabama. So in 1955, I volunteered to join the Army. During my time in the military, the problem of segregation persisted, even though the Army had recently desegregated. There were still certain white people who just didn't want to be near black people. I found that I, as a black soldier, had to be better, twice as good, as the white. Otherwise, I could get no advancement or promotion. I can remember vividly one incident where I was supposed to get promoted. I was on the promotion list. They had a group of us to go before a board, and I was not chosen. Instead, I was sent from Fort Belvoir to Texas where I was informed that they did not have a job for me. In 1962, I went to Vietnam. When I returned, I landed in California, and on my bus ride home, I still had to go to the back of the bus. I still had this white and black hanging over my head, even though I had been out fighting for my country. After 21 years in the military, I encountered many good people, and some who still have the same old selfish ways and probably will continue to be that way until their death. It is my hope that this country can get itself together and judge each man as a man and each woman as a woman. Over my lifetime, the black and white situation improved in some areas and in other areas it did not. 
I believe it is a situation that won't get better until every man and every woman decides that each man and each woman is equal. Good morning. My name is Stacy Thompson. I'm reading this on behalf of my uncle Johnny. I was born in 1948. This was a time during the legal period of segregation. So by law, everything was separate but equal, though it was not equal at all. I remember when we would go to Dothan, Alabama for back-to-school shopping sprees. There was a lunch counter we would always visit on our way out. We went in, and while we were waiting for our order, I noticed an empty seat at the counter and sat down. Then a man working there told me I couldn't sit there. When I asked why, he said, we serve blacks here, but you're not allowed to sit. There was an individual named Otis Williams who we did a lot of sharecropping with. I was around 17 at the time and was told to go on a chore to ask him a question. So I went and I knocked on the front door thinking nothing of it. He later confronted my mother and told her, you tell that boy of yours that if he comes to the house to knock on the back door, not the front. There was also a general store in Malone, Florida with a sign of a black hand on the front door pointing to the back. Everybody knew it meant blacks were to use the rear entrance. You could go in the store and go all the way to the front of the store, but you could never go in and out the front door. A year before I graduated from college, Martin Luther King was assassinated. The reaction was strong. We had riots on campus, and they closed the university down for two weeks. So I went home, and on the day of Martin Luther King's funeral, I was visiting the campus of my previous school. The flag was flying at half-mast. You had a group of white students that would go out and put the flag up. Then a group of black students would go out and put, the, put, the, put it back down at half-mast. This continued to go on, and things got really charged. Some started marching around the student union building with rebel flags. Then I heard of weapons being involved, and that is when I knew it was time to get out of there. These are just a few of the experiences my uncle shared about growing up during this time. He now lives in New York, where he's been an educator in African-American history studies for over 30 years. Okay, and I'm Richard, also Thompson. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Stacy and I were both born about the time that the Loving case was uh, just starting to get adjudicated in the courts. And uh, I proposed to Stacy in August of 1990, which was 23 years after the Supreme Court handed down their, their decision. Uh, wedding plans began almost immediately. Uh, Stacy had always pictured walking down a long center, a church with a long center aisle, and unfortunately that wasn't available in the church that she grew up in. It was a circular church and had a very short aisle. So she started looking for other churches in the area, and this was in Woodbridge. Uh, in October, she found a church that was newly built and fairly close to her parents' house, and she went and met with the people and, and booked it for the following May. Uh, it was, had a long center aisle, exactly what she was looking for, and uh, she was very excited for me to take a look at it. A week later, we both went to the church, and uh, after seeing it together, we agreed that it was the, the one that we wanted to use. Uh, as we were leaving, we met some people in the church parking lot who asked if we needed any help. Uh, Stacy very excitedly ex explained to them that we had uh, uh, reserved the church and we were going to be getting married there in May, and because uh, it was exactly what she was looking for. The following day, however, uh, she received a phone call explaining that the church was no longer available and we would need to uh, find another location. Well, we thank the Thompson family uh, very much for sharing.
Okay. What I'm getting ready to share has been considered by some to be the most abused passage in all of the Scripture. And I want to remind you uh, right now something else. And I said this last week. This series is five weeks long. And we're just going to kind of move all around, around the place, right? All, all, all over the world, so to speak, all right? And right now, I'm, I'm getting ready to talk about some things that happened in this country. Uh, they happened all over this country, uh, but predominantly they happened in the South, Okay, maybe you're from the south and, and you're, you're not going to like that. It's okay. Trust me, it's okay. Problems are everywhere and we're going to move around. As Ben Watson said, which I said repeatedly last week, this issue of racial reconciliation is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And the Bible says all of us are sinners, right? We're all self-centered by nature. Okay, good? All right. What I want to talk about here again is what some Bible scholars consider to be the most abused passage in all the Bible, and I believe that this heresy has so infected this country that we are feeling the reverberations of this heresy even to this day, and we need to talk about it. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Genesis chapter 9, Noah, famous guy in the Bible, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, gets naked. His son Ham, he has three sons, son Ham comes in, and it says, quote, he sees his father's nakedness. He sees his father's nakedness. He goes out. Dad sobers up, wakes up, and he finds out about it because Ham had told his brothers, I saw dad's nakedness. Noah, father, very mad, very, very mad, curses his son Ham. I want to read it to you from Genesis chapter 9. This is what it says. Cursed be Canaan. Now that's Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be his brothers. Now, how do you get people who read this message, which is a wonderful message of equality and justice, how do you get them to then take this wonderful gift and use it to oppress other people and to make them feel inferior and to do all kinds of terrible things of injustice? This is what you say to them. You say to them that the name Ham means black, And Ham represents all black people. And all black people have been cursed. And if you believe in God's word, if you believe in God's word and you believe in the Bible, then you have to accept the fact that all black people have been cursed, they're destined for slavery, and will always be in fear. Now, this was taught widespread. It was published in newspapers. It was the central justifying scripture to validate slavery and treating people in very unjust ways. It was preached from pulpits. It was found in highly respected commentaries, highly respected commentaries. You can buy some of those commentaries to this day on Amazon or in a Christian bookstore. That's how prevalent. I need you to know this. This wasn't a small thing that some wacko church did somewhere. This is extremely widespread. It's known. I heard about it when I was a kid myself. People talking about it. Very widespread heresy. Now, I want to make a book recommendation for you. I'll put it up on the screen. I'll tell you what it is. This is Tony Evans, and the name of his book is Oneness Embraced. All right? Uh, Tony Evans, he's been, today he's called America's Pastor. Pastor's Church in Dallas, Texas. 
grew up in Baltimore. I guess he's close to 70 now. He's African-American. Uh, does a much better job than I will ever do explaining in a very full way, not just what I'm getting ready to tell you, but a lot of issues around this. I highly recommend uh, that you get this book. Now, when Tony uh, was a teenager in Baltimore and was interested in the ministry, a minister sat him down and explained Genesis chapter 9 and the curse. Tony, a young black man, teenager, said, Hey, Tony, here's what it says. This is just the way it is. And if you believe God's word and you trust God, you're going to have to accept your position. Now, Tony says, Well, oh, I wasn't a Bible scholar. I didn't know Hebrew. I, what, what was I to say? How was I going to say any different? And... Tony's favorite study Bible was the old Schofield reference Bible. He loved that Bible. And as he looked through the Bible, you know what the Bible contained? It has all this commentary in it. And it said, the curse of Ham is the curse against all black people. When he went to uh, college, Bible college in Atlanta, and he attended a church, a white church, he was told afterwards because... All good Baptist churches have an altar call. And he went up to the altar. He was informed at the altar to please not come again. When he went to the famous Dallas Theological Seminary, famous Dallas Theological Seminary, and attended a church where he wanted to become a member, they was told, you can't become a member here. In Dallas, Texas, there's a famous preacher. He's not with us anymore. W.A. Criswell. He pastored First Baptist Dallas. Huge, famous church. W.A. Criswell used the curse of Ham to justify segregation. So I need you to know this. This is a very, very widespread heresy that has infected this country, and some people to this day still believe it. Some people, because they don't want to believe otherwise, some people because they've been told that, and they're not Bible scholars, how would they know any difference? And some people just because when our sarks is comfortable and it doesn't affect me, I guess that's just the way it is, Right? That's the way it is. So what really is the truth about Genesis chapter 9? Well, the truth is this. The curse is on Canaan, the son of Ham, not Ham himself. The name Ham does mean black. But the curse is not upon Ham. It is not upon black people. It says here that Ham saw his father's nakedness. That is a euphemism. All right? So listen closely. It is a euphemism because Ham went in and had sex with his mother. You'll see the euphemism in a lot of places in the Bible, particularly Leviticus chapter 18. So Ham goes in while his mom and dad are drunk and has sex with his mom. Now, why would somebody do that? For you that really know the Bible very, very well, you'll remember that King David had an uprising in his kingdom and his own son Absalom ran him out of town. And Absalom made a big deal out of this. He says, you know what? I want you to put up tents on top of my dad's palace because I'm going to do what? I'm going to sleep with all of my dad's wives. Why? Why is that? Because it means you are in charge. You have taken over. And that's what the Sarks likes to do. The Sarks likes to take over. You are usurping. And so what you see is that Ham comes in and he sleeps with it. He rapes his mother. And what is inferred from this scripture is that the fruit of that sin was a child by the name of Canaan. Hey, everybody, God is not cursing black people. I'm going to say it again. 
God is not cursing black people. God is cursing the sin of incest. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't. But here's the thing. God says for a son to rape his mother is a sin. And I'm imagining all of you would say, yes, that is a sin. Well, so does God. He says the exact same thing. God says it's a sin. So God says to the Israelites, when you go into the land, make sure you drive out the Canaanites. Does God have a problem with the Canaanites? No, God has a problem with incest. God has a problem when a father rapes a daughter. He says, that's a sin. Don't, no, don't do that. that, I can't, I, that that's no good. They're not going to go. I drive that out. Get rid of that. That's sick. It's terrible. It's going to cause tremendous pain and suffering. That is a sin. I'm hoping everybody in the room feels the exact same way. That is a sin. It is a sin. God says, drive that out of the land. I will not stand for that. The curse is not against black people, everybody. Not at all. The curse is, as God says, this sin of incest must go. The Canaanites were famous for incest. They had a lot of terrible practices, including sacrificing their own children. But there was a lot of incest. There was a lot of raping of children that went on amongst the Canaanites. But this is not a curse against black people. God is cursing the sin of incest. I want to make two things very clear in conclusion. Now I'm going to ask the music team, those who are on it, uh, to come up and um, help me finish this out. They're going to play. We're going to sing a song. But I, I, I want to just tell you two things that I think are very important in conclusion here. The first one is this. God has blessed black people just like God has blessed all of his children. I say it again. Both through church history and biblical history, I want to be clear. God has blessed black people just like God has blessed all of his children who he loves very dearly. I'm going to give you a list, and it is not exhaustive. I need to give you just a quick snapshot of some things that maybe you do and maybe you do not know. St. Augustine, not Augustine. Augustine is a beach in Florida. This is St. Augustine. Okay? St. Augustine who, by people who know something about theology, consider him always to be on top five list of top theologians throughout all of history. Many people consider him to be number one theologian that has ever lived outside the Bible. He was absolutely brilliant. Fourth century theologian. He was from Africa. He was black. He is greatly revered in seminaries all around the world. It's fantastic. Joshua and Caleb, they went into the land. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that came back and gave a good report. Caleb, it's black. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who gave the single greatest piece of advice on setting up a new nation, how to organize, how to structure. We glean from Jethro's brief words to this day, was black. Numbers chapter 12, Moses marries his wife, is black. The beautiful bride in the romance book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, is bride, is black. And finally, Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene, who, when Jesus Christ, so beaten, so ripped apart, could no longer stand, they got Simon of Cyrene, a black man to come and carry the cross of Jesus Christ to Calvary. If you don't know this, I want you to know throughout biblical history and church history, 
black people have had prominent and blessed places. First thing. Second thing. Until there is genuine repentance in all of our hearts for the wicked things of injustice that have taken place, especially for those who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ and followers of this message, the Word, which Dr. King says, I'm standing on this Word because it is the answer. For those of us who were followers of the Word and of Jesus Christ, when you hear about things so vile and sick about making people feel in fear and using this Word that is pure and holy and to be a blessing to justify that action, if you have the Spirit of God on your life, then you are deeply grieved and you can't get away from it. You cannot get away from it. You can never say, well, that happened then. I wasn't there. That wasn't me. That was somebody else. You can't do that. Because if the Spirit of God is upon you and you hear about what the Word was used for, because the Spirit is on you, the Spirit grieves you and you say, oh my God, please forgive us for this terrible sin. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, who was just a man of God, he was straight as an arrow. He was about as good as you could. He wasn't sinless, but he was about as good and as righteous as you could possibly be. And he warns over and over and over again his people who are rebellious. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. They won't stop. And finally, there's like total calamity and breakdown. And in Daniel chapter 9, he prays this powerful prayer. And I want you to listen to the words he said in this prayer. He says, oh God, we, what do you mean we? We have sinned. You, Dan, you didn't do anything. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your word. Oh, God, have mercy on us. If you're a person who is a follower of the word and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is upon you, then you're deeply grieved when you hear about these terrible, heinous sins that takes place where people would use the word of God to make other people feel inferior and suffer injustice. And so the only way out, everybody, is that we have to have a genuine spirit of repentance to fall upon us and where we honestly say before God, God, forgive us, have mercy on us, and restore us once again because the reverberations of this heresy are just going to keep being heard over and over and over again. It's going to flood this earth unless something rises up against it and stops it. And what stops that is genuine repentance by God's people. If my people, the problem is never out there, everybody. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves in turn, that's repentance, turn, I'll bring healing. Church, until we allow a spirit of repentance to fall upon us and grieve before God and say, God, forgive us, we will keep hearing these reverberations. They will not stop. But God has given us a way out. It is through repentance. God, would you please, please forgive us. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray the exact words of Daniel. I'm going to let you know as we sing this, uh, as we sing this song this morning, I'm going to tell you, uh, and I think this is actually important, we have four crosses in the room. One, two, three, four. And we have these cloths here, and we're going to turn these cloths into something beautiful. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to write on my cloth. God, please forgive me, forgive us for this sin. You know, whatever you want to put on that, but I think it's really important that we put it out there before God and we lay it in the foot of the cross in these vessels here that are at the bottom and say, God, we've created a mess and we're asking you to do a miracle with the mess. And we're laying this before you, humbly repenting, God forgive us. Maybe, maybe you know of something that you personally have done and you just, you don't, this is anonymous. 
You put whatever on it. You put a letter X on it as far as God's concerned. He knows what that means. Until we come before God and we lay this at the foot of the cross and believe God to give a miracle to our land, to restore us in genuine repentance, we're going to keep hearing the reverberations of this heresy over and over and over again. So I encourage you, while we sing, if you want to go to the cross as you can, halfway through, Christian's going to do a soft dismissal. And anybody who wants to leave, you're free to go. And he's going to keep singing and playing. And at that time, if you want to go to the cross, you can. You go to the cross whenever you feel like. Our prayer team is going to be on this wall, and our prayer team is going to be on this wall. And this, everybody, is very important. Listen, you will not skip this step. America will not skip the repentance step and move on to something else. This is the process in God's Word. Would you please stand with me? Heavenly Father, I just want to pray uh, the words of Daniel here straight from Scripture, just what he prays before you. God, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked. We have rebelled. We have turned from your word. And God, would you please, since repentance is the answer, would you allow your spirit to fall upon this room and bring a genuine spirit of repentance upon our hearts, deep and heavy, that we might come before you and beg for your mercy and your grace and that you would restore this land in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.